Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the glorious truths that you have given us in the book of Daniel. You have shown us that you are faithful to keep your promises, the most detailed and minute promises that you've made in the past that have been fulfilled. And we can depend on you and we can trust you to fulfill your promises which are yet to be fulfilled in the future. We thank you for the certainty that you give us, the assurance that you give us. We ask that you would help us to understand this book. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel, Jesus Christ, the Smiting Stone. And if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you might know what that refers to. The name Daniel, or Daniel, means God is judge, or God is my judge. The basic theme of this work is the overruling sovereignty of the one true God who condemns and destroys the rebellious world powers and faithfully delivers his covenant people according to their steadfast faith in him. The prophet Daniel is the author of the book of Daniel. And we would say, duh, well, of course. But um, as you'll see, there's, that's not widely accepted today among scholars. Not only did Daniel claim authorship, but all, Jesus also stated that Daniel wrote the book in, in Matthew 24, in the Olivet Prophecy, the Olivet Discourse. And that's what really counts for us. Daniel wrote the book in Babylon, probably sometime after 536 B.C., the date of the last recorded event in the text. Some scholars suggest the year 530 B.C. was when he wrote it. The whole book claims to come from the same Daniel. These are some of the reasons why we believe that Daniel did write the book of Daniel. The whole book claims to come from the same Daniel who was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. and who lived at least until the end of, uh, until the third year of Cyrus in 536 B.C. So that's the first reason that the, the book claims that it was written by Daniel. Uh, the whole book claims to come from the same Daniel who was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. Our Lord Jesus Christ referred to the last section of the book, the last section of the book, as the work of Daniel, the prophet. And he called Daniel specifically a prophet. This is the very section that critics most often dispute, is that last half of the book. But Jesus said that was written by Daniel. The book of Ezekiel, which is recognized even by critics as a work of the 6th century, refers three times, three times, the book of Ezekiel refers to Daniel as a famous believer. So Daniel was already established as a famous believer in the, in the time of Ezekiel's ministry. The teaching of the Jewish Talmud attributes this book to the Daniel of the 6th century B.C. And the, the Talmud wasn't completed until about the 5th century A.D. So, those Jewish scholars recognized this as being an early book, not, not something that just came along during the time of the Maccabees. A careful comparison of the linguistic style and vocabulary of Daniel with books from the Maccabean period, that's when liberal scholars think it was written, in the 2nd century B.C., around the 160s, reveals that Daniel is not from that period, but from an earlier one. And of course, the reason that the liberal scholars don't 
want to acknowledge that Daniel was written when it, when it says it was written back in the 6th century B.C. is because of those pesky, detailed prophecies again. The liberals think, oh, Daniel couldn't possibly have written this before it happened. It had to be written after the fact. Well, I'll show you why that can't be true later on. The book of Daniel offers some of the most astonishing and astounding views of the prophetic past and future in the Bible. Daniel fits in both the prophetic and historic sections of Scripture, chronologically linking the time between the kings, the reigns of the kings in Second Chronicles, and the restoration of, of, Jude, of Jerusalem in Ezra, when Israel returned, when Judah returned after the captivity. The book of Daniel begins by describing the Jewish deportation to Babylon and continues through Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks. It can be divided into two major sections. The historic, there are seven historical narratives that deal with prophetic history, and the prophetic, for prophetic visions interpreted by the angel of the Lord. Now at the time that Daniel wrote these prophecies, they were all in the future. In his day, they were all in the future. But we can see that many of them have been fulfilled from our vantage point, from our perspective. And there are others which remain yet to be fulfilled at the time of the end. So the historical narration, the first six chapters, there's the selection of Daniel in chapter 1, the secrets of God in in chapter 2, the steadfastness of God's servants in chapter 3, the sovereignty of God in chapter 4, the sin and fall of Babylon in chapter 5, and the supplication and deliverance in chapter 6. And then the the second half of the book, the prophetical revelations, uh, symbols significance in chapter 7, that's the significance of the symbols of these beasts that we read about in chapter 7, sacrilege in the sanctuary in chapter 8, Here's an important one, the 77s, 77s of years in chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecy. Strength from the Savior in chapter 10. The sinister Savior in chapter 11. Of course, when by Savior in quotes, I'm referring to the Antichrist. And then the salvation of the saints in chapter 12, the final chapter of the book. The, the gospel in Daniel. As a Jew, Daniel knew that Israel lived in expectation and anticipation of a coming kingdom ruled by the Messiah. No doubt he was troubled when he had his vision of Gentile nation after Gentile nation ruling the world, wondering when that Messiah would come. But when the Messianic prophecies started pouring in, leaving us uh, with some of the most profound accurate predictions about the Messiah in all of the Bible. In Daniel chapter 2, we see the Son of Man, the Messiah, and that was a a favorite designation that Jesus used of himself in, in the Gospels, the Son of Man. And that expression is used in Daniel. Uh, as a smiting stone that comes out of heaven, In his vision of the dominant kingdoms of the earth, Daniel described how a stone was cut out without hands, and the stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 
Jesus is that rock, and he will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. We see that both in Daniel and in the book of Revelation. Daniel prophesied about this kingdom in the same chapter, saying that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. This prophecy is echoed echoed throughout the rest of the book, including Daniel's prediction that the Messiah would return to earth in glory to rule. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. The final week referred to in Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy is the seven years of tribulation, the events that will precede Jesus' second coming. The book of Daniel provides us with some of the most specific information about the Messiah, continuing to weave that scarlet thread of redemption throughout the intricate tapestry of God's story. History, well, Daniel was born in Judah under the reign of King Josiah around 621 B.C. He was taken into captivity by Babylon during the first Jewish deportation sometime around 606 or 605 B.C. and put under the service of King Nebuchadnezzar, eventually taking a key administrative role. The historical events in the book of Daniel are the same events that took place during the lives of of the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Daniel was a captive in Babylon, along with thousands of other Jews. He lived and ministered in Babylon for close to 70 years, probably from 605 to 536 B.C. During his captivity, Babylon passed through the hands of at least four major rulers, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, the Median king Darius, and the Persian ruler Cyrus. So there were several changes of administration, but Daniel kept serving, and he also kept faithfully serving God. Here's a a chart that shows you where the book of Daniel fits in in history. So here's Daniel's ministry here, his prophetic ministry. And you can see how he was in, it coincides with the latter part of Jeremiah's ministry, his prophetic ministry, and that all of of Ezekiel's prophetic ministry is encompassed within this time period of Daniel's ministry. So you can see why uh, Ezekiel, in his book, referred three times to, to Daniel, because Daniel was an already known uh, man of faith in the time of Ezekiel's ministry. Both Daniel and Ezekiel were in captivity in Babylon. Uh, Daniel was taken in his first captivity in around 605 B.C., and Ezekiel in this later one, around 587, or I can't read that very well, but... Um, he was taken into captivity later. So both, both Daniel and Ezekiel were in, in captivity in Babylon, but the difference was that Daniel was in government. He was actually serving in the governmental administration, whereas Ezekiel was prophesying to the people, to the captives, the uh, captives from Judah. So they were ministering to different 
Gimbals, but they were uh, living at the same time. Uh, the latter part of Daniel's prophetic ministry overlaps a little bit with uh, Zerubbabel, and that was when the people returned from captivity and began re restoring and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And up here you can see the uh, the Gentile rulers of the time. So first there was the Babylonian Empire, who's Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, Belshazzar was ruling here. That's the time of the handwriting on the wall that we'll see when we get to chapter 5. And then, of course, Belshazzar was overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire, and Daniel continued to serve there. Some of the things that we learn from the book of Daniel, first of all, human-based governments don't last. That's certainly one thing we see from Daniel's experience. Daniel's visions make it clear that mankind cannot successfully govern itself in a lasting way, either nationally or individually. He saw mighty kingdom after mighty kingdom fall. Only God can give your life true meaning, value, and purpose. So let him govern it. Only his kingdom will be outstanding in the end. Secondly, suffering makes us question God. So often we think that hardship is for other people, even other believers, but not for us. I know he allows suffer others to suffer, but me, no way. But if God is truly sovereign and loving, then that means that he's in charge of your bad times too. All of history centers on Christ's atoning work on the cross. The pivotal moment in all creation was when God sent his son to die for the sins of mankind. The 70 weeks prophecy that we'll look at later in chapter 9 shows us God's plan for this moment in history, revealing the tremendous love he has not only for his people Israel, but also for all of mankind. The book of Daniel centers primarily on, on the people of Israel, but as we know from later developments, that, that includes the Gentiles as well. So first, in the first chapter, we read about the selection of Daniel. And despite the fact that Nebuchadnezzar changed the country, the language, the education, the diets, and the names of Daniel and his friends, he, he gave them new Babylonian names. And you know that you remember the names of his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, he'd also give, given Daniel a different name, uh, a Babylonian name. I believe his name was Belteshazzar. But Daniel determined not to defile himself with the king's wine or meats. Probably there were some unclean meats from, the, from a Jewish perspective. And then also, uh, the wine and the meat were probably associated with idols. So Daniel was determined not to partake of that. God both prospered and promoted Daniel in the kingdom. He was selected to be an administrator over the wise men of the kingdom, for God had blessed him. And incidentally, it's even possible that since Dan Daniel was serving in, in government, 
in both the uh, Babylonian Empire and then on, on into the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire, it's possible that he was involved, actually involved with the wise men centuries later that came to visit Christ. Um, he, he may have, have actually set up something like a, like a, a, a fund to provide for these later wise men who would come to the uh, to visit Jesus in Bethlehem. Uh, he may have provided the funding for those those gifts that the wise men offered to to Jesus, because uh, Daniel was a eunuch serving in the government. He didn't have any descendants, so he had uh, considerable wealth as a, as a member of the of the. Uh, administrations of, of Babylon and, and Persia. So he may have actually set up this fund to, to make it possible for the wise men centuries later to go to visit the young Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar not only wanted his wise men to interpret the dream, this is in the, in the second chapter, where Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, but he was, he was a little bit different. He was a little bit tougher than, than Pharaoh because he not only wanted them to interpret his dream, but he wanted them to tell him what it was. He also demanded to tell him what, it, what the dream was because he knew that it was more likely that if they knew what the dream was, they could tell him what it means because otherwise they could just make up anything about what it means. But he wanted them to tell him what it means. No one but Daniel was able to do so. He had threatened to, to exterminate all of the wise men, to kill them, to execute them. But Daniel uh, said, no, don't do that. I'll do it. I'll give you the interpretation of the dream and tell you what, it's, what it is and what it's about. So the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had portrayed a great metallic man with a golden head, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and legs of iron built on feet of iron mixed with clay. In the, in the King James Version, it says belly and thighs of brass. But you need to understand what brass meant back in 1611 when, when the King James Bible was written. At that time, the word brass referred to copper or to any alloy of copper. Whereas now, the, the word brass refers to a specific alloy of copper. It's copper and, uh, and zinc. Copper and zinc. So, so nowadays the word brass refers to copper and zinc. But brass wasn't known to the ancient peoples. They, they hadn't discovered how to, how to smelt zinc yet. So it's, it's much more likely that uh, bronze is the correct interpretation of what that, that word means, bronze. Uh, an alloy of copper and uh, tin. The ancients did know how to make that. There's a, a visual representation of what this metallic image may have looked like with the head of gold, the arms and chest of silver, silver the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron and the feet, partly of iron, partly of miry clay. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given sovereignty, power, might, and glory. You are the head of gold. After you, 
there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then another kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron. So the thing that happens with these kingdoms, represented by this metallic image, is that as we go down the image, the, the metal that's used becomes less and less valuable, but at the same time it becomes stronger. So gold at the top is the most valuable, but gold is very soft, very malleable. But as you go down the image, uh, iron is less valuable than gold, but it's stronger than gold. So that's what happens with, with these kingdoms. So to reiterate, the, the image of Daniel, chapter 2. The head of gold represents the Babylonian Empire. The arms and chest of silver represent the Medo-Persian Empire. And the belly and thighs of brass, as it's, as it's called in the King James, or, or more correctly, bronze, is the Greco-Macedonian Empire, the empire that was begun by Alexander the Great. And then the legs of iron are the Roman Empire. And then, of course, the very bottom, the, the feet of iron and clay, next represent a, a revival of the Roman Empire that will take place at the time of the end. The feet represented a ten-member confederacy of kings in the end time, which would eventually be smitten by the great rock, Christ, who would thereupon set up the, his endless kingdom. So that would be the succession of nations. At Daniel's time, that was all future, because he lived in the time of that head of gold, the Babylonian Empire. But all of these things would come to pass, just as God predicted through his prophet. In chapter 3, we read about the kingdoms of the world, of this world, are man-centered and idolatrous. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he was only the head of gold. But in real life, he, in his pride, he, he made a, a, an image, an entire image, not just the head of gold, but he made the entire image of gold to which he commanded all to worship. So he wanted everybody to worship this image that he made. But the three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends of Daniel refused and were cast into the fiery furnace as punishment for not worshiping in this image. There they were saved by the angel of the Lord, Christ. Usually when the Old Testament refers to the angel of the Lord as opposed to an angel of the Lord, when it refers to the angel of the Lord, it's, it's pretty certain that it's referring to Christ. One like the Son of God, they would not bend or bow to idolatry, and they did not burn. God delivered them. So we read about the steadfastness of God's servants. They relied upon God and he delivered them. In chapter 4, we read about the sovereignty of God. Nebuchadnezzar, the mighty potentate, the, the great ruler of ancient Babylon, learned the hard way that there was a sovereign over him. He was not the top dog. His vision of a huge tree 
which symbolized his empire, cut down by God, was to teach him that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. God is sovereign in the affairs of men. Men may rule, but God overrules. Ultimately, history is his story. So, basically, uh, Nebuchadnezzar went insane for, apparently, for seven years. He, was act, he acted like an animal during that time. His hair grew, his nails grew. He was eating grass like an ox. Now, some, some people say that this is just legend, but actually there, there is a an actual medical condition where people do do that. They behave like animals. And so it's not, a, it's not at all far-fetched to, underst- to understand that that really did happen. In chapter 5, we read about the sin and the fall of Babylon. Babylon falling to the Medo-Persian Empire. God again demonstrates his sovereignty over kings and kingdoms as he announces in a startling supernatural manner the demise of Babylon. So Belshazzar, who was ruling Babylon at that time, he held a great banquet for his nobles. He ordered the golden and silver goblets that were taken from Jerusalem, from the temple, by Nebuchadnezzar, to be brought to his banqueting hall so that he and his guests might drink from them. So they were treating what God had declared holy in a very trivial manner. As they drank from these holy goblets, they praised their gods. The sacrilege did not go unnoticed by God. Suddenly, human fingers appeared in the air and wrote a message on the wall of the palace. So this is that famous incident of the handwriting on the wall. From out of nowhere, a hand appeared and began writing on the wall of the palace. As with King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, back in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel was the only wise man who would provide an interpretation, who could provide an interpretation of the message. He was the only wise man who could interpret the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the only wise man who could interpret what this handwriting on the wall meant. The message was brief. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. At the service level, the words meant literally amina, amina, a shekel, and half shekels. These are units of measurement for, for money. These units of measure suggested an image of monetary weights being placed on a scale. But each word contained a double meaning. The term mene sounded like mena, meaning to number. So God had numbered the days of Belshazzar's reign, and the king's time was up. His days were numbered. The word tekel sounds like the verb tekal, meaning to weigh. Belshazzar had been weighed on God's scales and found wanting. 
the term uparsan, combining the conjunction and, that's the, the u part, and the plural of uh, peres, half shackle, that sounded like the verb peras, to break in two. Belshazzar's kingdom had been broken and would be handed over to the Medes and Persians. That very night, Babylon fell. The king was killed, and Darius the Mede ascended to his throne. Now, there is some controversy about who was this Darius the Mede. Now, this, this particular Darius the Mede is not to be confused with Darius, who was a, a later Persian king. They're not the same people. Um, it's thought that maybe this Darius the Mede was the man who's known to history as Gubaru. He was the governor of Babylon under Cyrus. Because we read about this Darius the Mede that he was, who was made ruler. So in other words, someone else appointed him the ruler of Babylon. So apparently Cyrus was the one who appointed him to be the ruler of Babylon. He wasn't the top ruler. He was a subordinate ruler under, under Cyrus. Now, I mentioned before about this idea that the book of Daniel wasn't written until much later, during the uh, time of the Maccabees in the, in the second century B.C. And there's a little detail in this passage that tells us that that cannot possibly be true. It was actually written when it says it was written back in the 6th century B.C. This is a painting of an artist's impression of what it was like, this handwriting on the wall. And here's what we read in verse 29 of chapter 5. Then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. This was after Daniel had interpreted what this handwriting on the wall, this message meant, and the king rewarded him. But it says he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And here's why that is so very significant. Why did Belshazzar make him the third ruler in the kingdom? If Belshazzar was the king, why couldn't he make him the second ruler in the kingdom? Well, the reason he couldn't do that is because Belshazzar wasn't the top ruler in the kingdom. Nabonidus was the actual king, and Belshazzar was his son. But the, at this time, the, the actual king, Nabonidus, was away. He'd been away for several years. So he appointed his son, Belshazzar, to take his place while he was gone. So that's why Belshazzar made Daniel the third ruler in the kingdom, because he was, Belshazzar was number two, so he couldn't make Daniel any more than the third ruler. But the reason that that is so important is that this proves that the book of Daniel couldn't have been written when the liberal critics say it was written back in the time of the, of the uh, Maccabees in the second century BC. Because at the time of the Maccabees, people would not have known this, that Belshazzar was the second in command. 
because that was only discovered, rediscovered uh, within the last 200 years or so. So the people living at the time of the Maccabees wouldn't have known that, that Belshazzar could only make Daniel the third ruler in the kingdom. So the, that's one more indication that the book of Daniel was written when it says it was written back in the 6th century B.C. In chapter 6, we read about supplication and deliverance. Daniel was not only a man of, of firm convictions, but he was also a man of regular prayer. And it was in this that his envious colleagues trapped him. They didn't like him, and they wanted to get rid of him, and they thought they'd found a foolproof way to do it. So they got the king to enact a, a law that for a certain period of time, no one could pray to anyone but the king. But of course, Daniel, as a faithful servant of God, couldn't go along with that. Through the king's proclamation that forbade prayer to any god other than Darius himself, these jealous men were able to arrest Daniel and have him thrown to the lions. But God delivered him, Daniel, from the den of lions, and Daniel was further exalted in the kingdoms of Darius and then subsequently of Cyrus. So the enemies of Daniel had hoped to get rid of him through this, but actually it just redounded to Daniel's further promotion within the kingdom. In chapter 7, the symbols' significance. Now, the symbols that we're talking about are these beasts, these four beasts. What do they represent? Like the book of Revelation, which is patterned after it, the book of Daniel involves a series of symbols. Nebuchadnezzar had seen the kingdoms of this world as a, a shining metallic man. That was the dream that he had of the kingdoms. This is man's self-glorifying image of himself. So man tends to see himself as, as great and glorious. But now we're getting these sequence of, of empires from God's perspective. God's perspective is quite different. He sees the kingdoms of this world as raging beasts. The head of gold is a, is a mighty lion, representing Babylon. The arms of silver are a ravenous bear, the Medo-Persian Empire. The thighs of bronze are, from God's perspective, a vicious leopard. That leopard has four heads, and we'll talk about those a little bit later. The legs of iron are pictured as a monster, partaking of some of the qualities of all three of its predecessors. That's the Roman Empire. So it has some of the qualities of, of the lion, the bear, and the leopard. And the horn, the power that arose out of Rome, that is the Antichrist, prevailed over the saints until the Ancient of Days came and subdued him in his ten-horned confederacy. So back in, in chapter 2, we, we saw the ten toes. Here in chapter 7, we see the ten horns. They, they are synonymous. They are the same thing. The, the, the term Antichrist is kind of interesting because really the book of Revelation never talks about the Antichrist. 
the, the word antichrist is only found in the epistles of John. The, the book of Revelation refers to this individual uh, ruling over this one world government as the beast. That's why I really prefer to use the term the beast. But if I talk about the beast, most evangelical Christians don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I, I talk about the antichrist because that seems to be the term that's widely accepted in evangelical circles. The beast of, of Daniel chapter 7. The beast that was like a lion, that's the Babylonian Empire. The beast that was like a bear, that's the Persian Empire. The beast that was like a leopard, that's Greece. Uh, it had four heads, and we'll talk about those in a little bit. And then this dreadful beast that was uh, like iron, that was the Roman Empire. The beast that was like a lion, it was a little different from, from uh, lions that you've seen. It had wing, the wings of an eagle on its back. And those, those wings of an eagle were plucked out, and it, and it talks about the, the lion standing up on its hind legs like a man. And apparently that, that's some reference to what happened to the first ruler of this Babylonian empire, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And remember back when we talked about his seven years of insanity, when he was like an animal. But eventually he was restored to his humanity. That, that, this uh, incident about the, about the lion having the wings and then the wings being plucked out and standing up like a man, that may be a reference to, to what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 8, we read about sacrilege and the sanctuary. In this vision, Daniel foresaw the victory of Alexander the Great. In this vision, he's represented as a he-goat, a male goat over the Persians, who are represented as a ram, and the subsequent division of Alexander's kingdom into four parts by his four generals. So it, in, in the vision, it talks about this goat coming and you know, butting its head against the ram and defeating the ram. And it talks about this goat having one notable horn. Well, the one notable horn was Alexander the Great. And then this one notable horn is broken off and four other horns come and grow up in its place. After the death of Alexander the Great, uh, it's amazing to read about the story of Alexander the Great because he died as a, as a young man in his early 30s. But in, in that brief lifetime, he had conquered all of the known world. But after his death, four of his generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, divided up his kingdom into four parts. So that's why we read about the, the four heads of that the leopard, the, the third beast that represented the Greco-Macedonian Empire. Uh, Daniel foresaw also the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes. The Antiochus Epiphanes was a ruler among the, among the Seleucids one of those four divisions. And his sacrilege of the temple 
when he stopped the Jewish sacrifices and offered up instead a sow, a female pig, an unclean animal. He offered that on the temple altar. These amazing predictions, hundreds of years before the events occurred, are an evidence of the supernatural origin of the Bible and a constant source of embarrassment to an object of attack by the critics. They just can't stand that, that these prophecies were given and fulfilled in such detail. They, they claim that it couldn't possibly be written before the fact. It had to be written long after those prophecies came to, be, came to pass. So in this prophecy, once again in chapter 8, the ram and the goat of Daniel chapter 8. So the ram is Persia, and the goat is Greece, the Grecian Empire. The one notable horn, once again, was Alexander the Great. It was broken off and replaced by four horns. The division of Alexander's empire into four parts. After the death of Alexander the Great, Cassander became the ruler of, of Greece in that area. Uh, Asimachus became the ruler of Asia Minor. Seleucus became the ruler of Syria and Babylon. And then Ptolemy became the ruler of Egypt. And the reason that I put Seleucus and Ptolemy in red is because from our perspective of the Bible, those are the two important branches. We don't read any more about Cassander or Asimachus, Greece or Asia Minor. We just... From that point on, the, the concentration, the focus is on Seleucus and Ptolemy because those are the two rulers that affect uh, Israel. Israel is caught in the middle between those two. So this is Macedonia, Greece over here. This is Asia Minor over here, today, Turkey today. But you can see that the land of Israel is caught in the middle between the Seleucids up in Syria and the Ptolemies down in Egypt. And we read about this constant seesaw back and forth. Each of these empires trying to gain the upper hand over the other. In chapter 9, we read about the 77s of years. One of the most amazing predictions, well, I just want to mention one more thing about these four divisions. When we get to chapter 11, we'll see this, the details of, the, of this conflict between the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south. And it's amazing how detailed those prophecies are. But anyway, let's, let's go on with the 77s of years. One of the most amazing predictions in the Bible foretold the very time of Christ's coming. While meditating on the 70 years of captivity, Jeremiah had predicted that Judah would be in captivity for 70 years. And, Jer and Daniel was meditating on this. Daniel was told by the angel Gabriel, that 77s, meaning 77s of years, would be decreed upon Jerusalem and the Jewish people before the Messianic age would come. The first 69 sevens, in other words, 483 years, 
would run from the command of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem in 444 B.C., and we'll talk a little bit about that later, to the cutting off of Messiah, the crucifixion. There would be this period of 69 sevens, 493 years. These are generally understood to be prophetic years. So 12 30-day months would be 360 days. So they're not solar years like we're familiar with, 365 days. But they're 360-day years, prophetic years. 483 prophetic years would be about 476 solar years, a little little bit more than that. Some scholars are content with a round number approximation. So they just multiply 69 times 7 to get 483 years. Others believe that this uh, is the exact number of years, even the days, number of days to Christ from the time that the command went forth to rebuild Jerusalem. Whatever the case, it is sufficiently close to to be amazing, especially in view of the fact that the most skeptical critic admits then the prophecy was given at least 165 years before Christ. So even if you believe that the book of Daniel wasn't written until the time of the Maccabees in the 2nd century B.C., in the 160s, that's still before the coming of Christ, right? And so this prophecy is astoundingly accurate about when Christ would come. Now, as far as the calculating it right down to the number of days... If we have 69 weeks of years, seven years in each week, that gives us 483 years. And then if we turn that into days, 483 years times 360 days per year, that gives us 173,880 days. So 69 weeks of years is 173,000. 880 days. Sir Robert Anderson was the one who was looking at this and calculated the number of days. Uh, He lived from 1841 to 1918. So his, his dates were used for quite some time. He begins the 69 weeks on March 14th, 445 B.C. He adds 173,880 days to that, and that brings us to April 6th, A.D. 32. So he thought that the the triumphal entry, what we call Palm Sunday, of Christ into Jerusalem, that took place in April 6th, A.D. 32. But later on, another individual named Harold Honer uh, did some further research into that, and he determined that that uh, Sir Robert Anderson was a little bit off as far as his starting date. So he begins the 69 weeks on March 5th, 444 B.C. So remember that Robert Anderson began it in 445 B.C. Uh, Honer tweaked that a little bit and said, no, it's 444 B.C., so he adds 173,880 days, 
and that brings us to March 30th, A.D. 33. So he calculated that that's when Christ made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, we talk about Palm Sunday. If you read uh, Harold Horner's book on the chronological aspects of the life of Christ, that's the title of the book, he says it was actually Palm Monday, not Palm Sunday. <laughs> he says it was Monday when, when Christ made his triumphal entry. The last of the 70 periods of seven years speaks of the future tribulation, the time when the Antichrist will reign. We read about that in Revelation chapters 11 to 13. It's divided in two parts of three and a half years. Daniel uses the word times, time, times, and half a time. The 42 months or 1260 days. In the middle of the seven-year period, the Antichrist will stop the sacrifices in the Jewish temple of the future. There is no Jewish temple today, but apparently there will be before the time of the end. And he will demand that all men worship him, the Antichrist, the beast. We can read about that in the writings of Paul in Second Thessalonians as well as in Revelation. So here's just a, an overview of the prophecies that are given in, in Daniel. In Luke uh, chapter 21, it talks about the times of the Gentiles. In this period of time when when Israel would be dominated by Gentile powers. So here we have a, a representation of the of the image of the metallic image, the head of gold, Babylon, the arms and chest of silver, you know, Persia, the belly and thighs of bronze, Greece, and the legs of iron, Rome. And then at the time of the end there will be these ten toes, part of partly of iron, partly of clay. And then in, in Daniel chapter 7, we, we see these, these same uh, parts, these same empires, represented by a lion, then a bear, then a leopard, and then this uh, ferocious monster that represents the Roman Empire. And then the, the image will be destroyed by a stone, which, of course, is Christ, setting up his kingdom on the earth. Uh, so Daniel was taken captive in 605 B.C. in the first wave of captivity. And then, uh, Judah was held captive by the Babylonians for 70 years. And then in here, Daniel prophesied that this 70 weeks prophecy would begin 483 years, taking us up to the time of the crucifixion. Then there is a gap which is variously referred to as the, the church age or the age of grace. And Bible prophecy doesn't tell us how long that period will be. But once that period is completed, then we'll come to the 70th week. 70th week of Daniel, which is divided into two halves. And one half is 1260 days or 42 months or three and a half years. So that's an overview of prophecy has given to us in the book of Daniel. This is a chart going in the succession of the nations. 
prophesied by Daniel. This is now, much of this is, is history. So this is when Daniel was taken into captivity, 605. 597 is when Ezekiel was taken into captivity. And then 586 is when Jerusalem was destroyed. That was all during the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire was, was uh, replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire. And it was in the Medo-Persian Empire when the people of Judah actually went back to Jerusalem, some of them anyway. The, the temple, temple work begins. The temple was rebuilt. It's also during this period, of course, that Esther becomes queen. And then there's this decree. Uh, this is this is 445. It's still using um, Sir Robert Anderson's number. But it's a decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's when the 70 weeks prophecy begins. Then we, we learn of Alexander the Great, who, who died at the young age of 33 after he conquered the world. There, there's a story about him uh, sitting in Sitting, he's so sad and melancholy because there, there's no more world to conquer. You know, <laughs> then they're done that, I guess. And then, uh, in the eleventh chapter of Daniel, we'll hear about the exploits of Antiochus Epiphanes, who persecuted, oppressed the Jews. There's a prophecy about that. This is during the the time of the Maccabees. The, the Maccabees revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes referred to, he gave himself the name of the Os Epiphanes, which means God revealed. So he, he considered himself to be the revelation of God. But the, the Jewish people... Um, Call him something different. <laughs> they call him Antiochus Epimenes. Epimenes means madman. <laughs> so instead of calling him Antiochus Epimenes, they call him Antiochus Epimenes. And then after the Greco Macedonian Empire in 63 BC, then we go into the Roman Empire. And Herod the Great and the rebuilding of the, of the second temple, he actually didn't rebuild it, he just refurbished it, remodeled it. And then it was during that time that Jesus was born and crucified. And then in AD 70, the, the uh, temple of Jerusalem were destroyed. But there will yet be a revival of this Roman Empire as we approach the time of the end. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel was frightened by the momentous reality of his vision from the Lord. His supplication for strength went unanswered for three weeks while the angel struggled with the demonic powers behind the great world kingdoms. But eventually his prayer was answered and strength came to Daniel from the Lord. The angel then promised to show him the truth of things to come. In Chapter 11, we read about the sinister savior, the, the Antichrist. The truth shown by the angel included a detailed description of the exploits of Alexander the Great, 
of the wars between Ptolemy and Seleucus. Those are two of the four divisions, the ones that, that we are concerned with in the Bible, of the persecution of Israel by Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epimenes, and of the Antichrist, of the end time, of whom Antiochus was a prototype or foreshadowing. So Antiochus was a, a picture of what will come in the end time, this ru final ruler. It is this last sinister figure who will, at the time of the end, go forth with great fury to exterminate and utterly destroy many. And he will pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. This Daniel chapter 11 is the longest continuous prophecy in the Bible. It gives us very detailed information about this struggle between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. It details the long-running struggle between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. They're constantly seesawing back and forth, and Israel is caught in the middle. So they're at war. They're uh, arranging palace intrigue against one another. Sometimes the, the Seleucid ruler would send uh, one of his daughters to marry the Ptolemy that was ruling at the time, and they would hope to gain, uh, gain control over the Ptolemies in that way. So there's, con there's constantly fighting and intrigue and so on. And as I mentioned before, uh, there are four divisions. After Alexander the Great died, there are four divisions. But the two that we're concerned with are the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And the Bible refers to the Ptolemies as the kings, kings of the south. So all through this chapter 11, we read about the king of the south and the king of the north. That's the king of Syria. And as we read these prophecies which have now been fulfilled from our perspective, fulfilled in history, we can identify the details. From the details, we can identify who these rulers are, the various Ptolemy rulers, the various uh, Seleucids, and the name Antiochus was used several times. And finally, the, the one that we know most about from history is Antiochus Epimenes, Antiochus the Great. Down here, Antiochus Epimenes, who was ruling at the time that the Maccabees revolted against him because he was so uh, so evil. He would would he would not allow the Jews to practice their religion. He defiled the temple, defiled the altar, and finally the Maccabees rose against him. As I mentioned, the, 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 um, the kings of the south, that's the, the Ptolemies, and the kings of the north, that's the Seleucids. They often use the name Seleucids or Antiochus. And then we get down here, we can identify all, of, all these rulers fulfilled in history, but we get, when we get down to verse 36, this has not yet been fulfilled. At verse 35, there's a dramatic change in the whole nature 
of chapter 11. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they need be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So up to this point, all of the previous verses have been fulfilled. Those prophecies have been fulfilled in history. But from 35 on through 45, the end of the, of the chapter, we're reading about future fulfillments, things which will be fulfilled at the time of the end. And then in the final chapter of the book, in chapter 12, we read about the salvation of the saints. But at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your, meaning the Jewish people, he's talking to Daniel, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. This is, of course, the tribulation. We read about this in, in Matthew 24, also in Mark 13, Luke 21, the, the Olivet Discourse. And we read about it in Revelation 6. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Of this revelation about the tribulation period before Christ returns to the earth, Daniel was told to seal the book until the time of the end. For meanwhile, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. An amazing prediction of advances in communication, education in modern times. The wicked will not understand these things, but the saints will purify themselves and know that it will be 1260 days from the time the Antichrist takes away the Jewish sacrifices and sets up his own image for worship in the temple to the end of the tribulation period. So those alive on this earth at the time of the tribulation will recognize that the, the end of, of the evil of this world is near. Then it will take another 30 days, after the 1260 days, it will take another 30 days to restore order after the terrible judgments and deaths culminating in the Battle of Armageddon. But blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. That is, uh, who waits to 45 more days. This may signify the official inauguration of the Messianic Age with the celebration of the Feast of Booths, Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. We read about that in Zechariah chapter 14. In any event, Christ will return as the great rock that smites the kingdoms of this world, and he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Father in heaven, we do thank you for these precious promises that you have given us in the book of Daniel, prophetic promises that we can be certain of and assured that they will come to pass, just as all of the promises that have been fulfilled in history have come to pass down to the very minutest detail. We thank you for this. We thank you for the comfort and assurance that you give to us. In Jesus' name, amen.